Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They thought they'd have a shelf life of six months and then players would be kind of churning through onto the next thing. But they found instead people were sticking with them and wanting more and more content. The voice of video games journalist Matt Kamen there, who'll be joining us later to give us some fascinating insights into the world of Candy Crush following a visit to their studio. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And brought to you, as ever, as always, by you. Thank you to our beautiful patrons supporting us each and every week at patreon.com slash UK tech. If you are one of our patrons, this is your extended, longer edit of this week's show with tons of extra stuff. Uh, if you're not yet a patron but would like to get our extended cut, uh, my weekly columns and, and various other bonus features, head to patreon.com slash UK tech. Find out how you can support us with zero commitment for as little as $1 per episode. Uh, Thanks to Ken Long and Tom Young, two of our most recent patrons since the last episode. You guys are fantastic. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed to our extended RSS feed on the Patreon uh, Patreon homepage uh, for text message and and hope you uh, enjoy the longer show. Now, something exciting is coming up in in December. More exciting, I would say, than the celebration of Christmas. More exciting even than my birthday. We are going to be doing a super special episode of text message focusing i want to say almost as a on kind of a book club format we are going to be doing a review of the book and the film in fact contact by carl sagan it's something that came up during one of our pre or post show recordings i think uh, on the uh, th- uh, of the show in a few weeks ago and we thought actually what if we do a review of the book and the film talk about some of the concepts in it it's a fantastic amazing book one of my all-time favorite books and films about uh, first contact with aliens written by carl sagan and what if we get some other sci-fi experts sci-fi book experts that is and uh, and films onto the show to help us talk about it and get an actual astrophysicist who is also intimately familiar with the book and its themes onto the show and have five people talking about the book and about space and sci-fi in general and SETI and the search for extraterrestrial life all of that stuff in one big bumper Christmas special that's what we're going to be doing in December mid-December in fact we're going to be recording it on the 16th of December which means you've got Christmas present to you basically the listener it is and what we thought we would do is tell you about it a month in advance (laughs) so everyone listening has got time to read the book watch the film uh, if you want to, so that when we do get to publishing that episode, you'll be able to listen to it with a, a huge degree of familiarity uh, mm. with the with the book, with the story, and, and really get something more out of it. Obviously, if you don't read the book or watch the film, 
you'll still have a very entertaining show because we're going to be talking about it, you know, very broadly and, and really yeah. using it as a jumping off point to talk about the themes of, of you know, searching for extraterrestrial life and, and, and everything else and sci-fi in general. But obviously, if you do read the book and the film uh, or watch the film first, you're going to get even more out of well, it. Well, so here's be, your... I'll be... Yeah. I was going to say, I'll be honest as well. Like, if you haven't seen that film, you're wasting your life. I don't want to be too controversial, but, you know, really, it is an amazing movie. We'll reveal who the guests are who are coming on, but safe to say, if you know... It's, if you really listen good, to, it's a really good lineup. Yeah, it is. If you listen to tech or astronomy type podcasts, it's it's highly, highly likely you'll know these people extremely well known, and it's going to be a fantastic episode. I can't wait. Now, let's talk about some news. Ofcom. And I should, in fact, say that thanks to Richard for flagging this, pointing out that three-year phone contracts are banned in in Britain. They've been banned, actually, for about six years. But telecoms watchdog Ofcom has intervened over fears that Apple's incredibly expensive new iPhone £10,000 minimum could be used to tie customers still into three-year contracts despite the ban. The Times has reported that Ofcom is looking into Virgin Mobile's offer of a 36-month contract on the iPhone 10. Essentially, what it's doing is offering a three-year repayment plan, interest-free repayment plan on the handset and pairing that with a 30-day rolling contract, which customers are only told they can cancel at any time in the small print. And the Times writes that essentially, as we say, it's an interest-free loan. So they're not, strictly speaking, offering a three-year contract on service. They're offering a three-year lock-in to paying off a loan for the device, uh, which if you cancel within that period, you just pay off the cost of the phone, not the cost of the contract, thereby circumventing the rule on uh, on three-year mobile phone contracts. So it's not technically against the rules, but it has triggered an, a warning from Ofcom, uh, a spokesman for which said, we have concerns about the transparency of Virgin's contract terms, which we are raising with the company. Virgin says in response, our 36-month iPhone 10 contract is a freestyle plan which splits the handset and airtime costs. Virgin Mobile customers have the flexibility to change or terminate their airtime plan every 30 days and handsets are sold unlocked to make switching providers easy if desired. Ian, yeah. thoughts? Um, I sort of get it. Do you get it? Like, I kind of, mm-hmm. I can see the attraction of it because it's basically what you're doing is, I mean, I, I, they, this is what they said, right? So, yeah. I um you're you're basically buying a phone on credit and yeah. you can and you can switch around and that's fine yeah I mean as long as you're not tied to something um I, I that, that gives you a good way to get a phone at an affordable price each month uh my opinion on credit you know be damned because it doesn't really matter because people are not going to listen to my particular opinion um yeah Perfect. I yeah, no problem with it. Let us know any thoughts you have on uh, on this. It certainly seems to be the only thirty six month contract of sorts that we've seen for these phones, which I guess is not surprising given Ofcom's stance. But it does make me wonder whether actually this is okay. Interest free loan you're paying off, not being tied into the contract itself. Let us know. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Well, Ian, a new facial recognition app from British startup Yoti, or Yoti, could be trialed in two supermarket chains following a deal with the self-service till maker NCR. This is according to the BBC this week. It would essentially enable shops to check the age of customers buying restricted products. Uh, the BBC says alcohol and knives. Don't know really uh. how many supermarkets are selling knives that require 
you know, an ID check, but without human intervention. Well, there's a law, right, um, you know, about uh, selling knives. In, in what sense? That well, you, you, can't... Can't, you can't sell them to under-18s. Um, I, I don't know what the exact law is, um, but, but it's like alcohol, basically. What, even like a, a, a dinner knife? Right, okay, I'll Google it. Hold on. <laughs> UK law selling knives. Because I think, if so, it seems incredibly risky that M&S, where I buy my rotisserie chicken lunch every day, gives oh, out free plastic knives. Yeah, no, but I mean, a plastic knife is fine, right? Uh, it is illegal to sell a knife to, of any kind to anyone under 18 years of old. Uh, 16 to 18 year olds in Scotland can buy cutlery and kitchen knives. Um, and then goes on to talk about the, the rest of the, the rules about what you can carry as a you know, matter of law uh, in public. Uh, but we don't care about that. But so, yeah, you can't buy a knife uh, unless you're over 18. Oh, oh, knife bit of Googling there, mate. Well done. Oh. No, that was good. That the, word, was good. the word you're looking for is, for fuck's sake. <laughs> so if you want to buy a knife or alcohol or cigarettes or something, you may have to, on a self-service machine that is currently, you may have to sort of wave your hands around like a maniac for some ill-tempered service assistant to come over and verify that you are how old you are. This system, if implemented as promised, would get rid of that because device that the, the till itself would be able to check your age. The Telegraph, in fact, detailed quite nicely how it works. The app is set up by taking a photo of yourself and then scanning a photo of your driver's license or passport. The app then links the two pictures together. They've got staff. So I'm assuming that someone is manually checking that, but there's a little bit of uh, confusion exactly how that bit works. And they then enable the app to say, you are who you say you are. Which means when you go into a shop and one of these tills have been activated, you hold your phone up to the QR code that it would display on screen when you're trying to buy um, buy the alcohol. And then you take a photo of your face on the app and oh. then... <laughs> and it is as convoluted as it sounds, then the two can talk to each other and say, yes, this person is who they say they are. They are 18 and you can buy your, your booze. To that me, is, it sounds very, very long-winded and probably... Really pointless. Yeah, but it, but it probably allows a supermarket to get rid of an, an additional couple of members of staff. Yeah, but I mean, but it's not going it, to... I don't think it's as good for preventing the sale of things that shouldn't be sold as it would be, you know, as a member of staff would be. And still, those checkouts break down constantly, so they need a full-time member of staff to monitor them anyway. So what's the difference between having that person and the, you know, them signing off on a booze or knife purchase? Well, I don't know. If you've ever been in a, in a, a sort of a medium-sized supermarket that's relatively busy and the thing beeps up to say that you've put something unexpected in its bagging area waving your hands around you know can sometimes take 10 20 seconds and it's incredibly frustrating and waiting for somebody to come over and fix the stupid machine because they're very dumb the, the the machines that is not the staff and so they are they tend to lean towards not being as fast and as painless as you'd like them to be than than just letting unexpected items in the bagging area pass <laughs> unchallenged but I don't know. I, I, I like the idea because it seems to be that this is where it's going. I have questions over whether this could be fooled by holding up a photo somehow or 
or, or what have you. And and legally, you know, I I'm I'm curious to find out more about how this how this works. For example, what happens if you manage to fool the machine, sell the alcohol to an underage person, and then get caught? Whose responsibility is that for having well, sold the it, alcohol? It remains the same. I, I there's no you know. Well, in fact, also I believe that the law is such that um, both the person buying the alcohol and the shop selling the alcohol can get into trouble. But um, <clears throat> it doesn't matter. It's still a shop. Yeah. So I'm going to look into that. It reminded me a little bit of what um, Japan started trialling about 10 years ago, which was a, a facial recognition vending machine, which went on sale. And it, it essentially tried to tell the age of a buyer based on a range of things like wrinkles and bone structure and how the skin sat on the face, things like that. And it was basically developed to stop you know young people from buying cigarettes from the vending machines. And if the machine said oh, you appear to be under suitable age, then they have to provide further ID, like a driver's license, in order to be to be sold the product. I don't know if they're still around, but I certainly remember it being quite a big deal when they were first introduced. So there's some precedent for these things, Yeah, at least being trialled globally. Hey-ho, let us know what you think. Hello at techpodcast.uk. Well, now it's time to have something a little bit different in your ears for a few minutes. I uh-huh. met up, well, I said it met up, I didn't, I Skyped him uh, with Matt Kamen this week, uh, who's a video games journalist, primarily writing for Wired. And he wrote a really, really interesting feature this week about Candy Crush, the popular video game, which I had no idea has now been around for half a decade, is still insanely popular. So I started asking Matt, who'd been to the studio to write this feature or to report this feature, I asked him, you know, what's their secret? Why is it still so popular? What's what's King, which develops the game, what's it doing to keep this game alive for so long? I was uh, still kind of surprised when I was invited out to kind of visit the studio. Because um, I, initially I thought it was like five years of the franchise. You know, they've done uh, the original game, Candy Crush Jelly Saga, Candy Crush Soda Saga. And I thought it was more going to be that, you know, how they've kept the whole thing going on. But it turned out that the first game candy crush saga is still their biggest um their most successful game it's still the one that gets the most uh users um so it was it was kind of uh kind of a blindsiding yeah i can imagine and it it surprised me when i read your piece that so many people are still playing this game you know it's five years old i think if somebody came out and said oh i'm still playing angry birds you know it's sort of like oh really you're still playing angry birds there's a bit of almost a bit of stigma to it but i read that they've got about three thousand levels or something now in that game uh, and and growing do you get a yeah. sense for sort of how many people are still playing are these numbers actually going up are they going down so one of the things that uh sebastian Knutson, uh who's the ceo and uh chief creative head at king uh was telling me was that the the overall numbers are on actually a slight downward trend but the number of uh engagements from their sort of loyalist players is uh is going up and the amount of time people are spending on the game is going up wow okay so fewer people are starting to play it but the ones who are playing it are sticking at it and playing it for for longer yeah and when you when you were visiting the studio what sort of a sense did you get from in terms of a vibe over there is it is it a is it kind of like a machine factory line of games production or is it is it quite accessible you know are people still excited over there to be making this now relatively old game yeah the 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 people working there seemed 
perky to uh to, to put it politely there, there was they were all very chill it seemed like a very kind of relaxed work environment it was actually the second time i've been there i went out about three years ago uh just before they launched um candy crush jelly saga i think it was and at the time it uh it was still lively it's fun it's a very colorful headquarters there's lots of uh candy crush and king characters in general on the the walls and the windows with like vinyl sheeting and uh play areas and the cafeteria has carousels for tables and stuff uh but when i went out uh, a few years ago it was before they'd been bought by activision and it did feel a little bit more a bit more formal there and this time post activision buyout uh they felt a little bit more relaxed and uh, again one of the things that knutson was saying to me was uh having that kind of corporate emphasis taken off king directly so they don't need to worry about their own quarterlies quite so much uh has allowed them to kind of feel a bit more creatively free and i did kind of get that vibe they did it felt a little bit more relaxed this time than it did a few years ago that's probably quite good for them to to feel more relaxed because i would personally worry in that sort of an environment that that you're sort of a one-hit wonder you know a lot of these a lot of these sorts of games are a dime a dozen as they say there's a lot of copycats out there you know candy crush itself is is essentially uh taking elements of successful games in the past like tetris to name just one and, and kind of repackaging it for the current generation um and repeating that success for some companies has been has been really difficult i mean do you think king can repeat this sort of success because so far what i see them doing with candy crush is sort of releasing the same game over and over again yeah there's definitely a repetition to a lot of their core games they've got four uh pillars if you will um and three of them are match three puzzlers of one variation or another the fourth is uh bubble witch saga 2 um and that's more like um Buster Move or Bubble Bobble. I think essentially having gotten in first and gotten big fast enough that they're kind of like the go-to for a for a casual game. They're, they're not going to try and do like um, a console quality, you know, AAA experience on mobile because that's not really what players go to King for. That's what we've seen from the likes of Gameloft. They do the yeah. Modern Combat, which is basically Call of Duty. They do Asphalt, which is basically like Need for Speed, that sort of thing. And then you've got Zynga that tends to do more board game type copies or SimCity clones with Farmville and Words with Friends and things. King seems to have stuck to just doing one thing, admittedly, several times, but very successfully each time. Yeah, and it's interesting. They, f they found relatively early on after they launched um initially back on facebook before they really leapt over to mobile that these quick casual games they thought they'd have a shelf life of six months and then players would be kind of churning through onto the next thing but they found instead people were sticking with them and wanting more and more content and i think there's something to the simplicity of them you know you do, it's not like an 80-hour RPG that you really need to focus on the battle system of and remembering where you are in the story. It's the three-minute thing that you play on when you're on the train. 
Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense actually because yeah. it's 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 more like a Sudoku puzzle book. You know, when you run out of puzzles, you you want some more pages, and that's yeah. essentially what they're what they're doing. But they're doing it in a really crowded market, and there's no shortage of both similar games and different games, all sort of vying for people's attention, all trying to get that you know quick get you in quickly for free, and then sell you in-app payment. Uh, based uh, sort of upgrades and stuff. How do you think they're able to actually maintain that visibility? You know, they always seem to be in the top ten for one thing. Yeah, I think a lot of it is is just down to marketing. Now they they got big enough early enough, and especially now with Activision Blizzard money behind them, that they can keep you know pumping out the advertising and the marketing and tracking user engagement and making sure people get the the right nudges through the game at the right time to kind of come back your lives have refilled you've got this power up available that kind of thing um as for reaching new people i'm not entirely certain that they are given um knutson's saying that you know engagements are on a slight downward trend uh i think that's why you've started to see them reach out in other media like you had the um the cameo for better or worse in the emoji movie um there's an american game show using candy crush as its format um i think that's how they're trying to kind of get the the wider brand out there so so what surprised you most when you were reporting this story is there something that that really caught you off guard and you just weren't expecting to discover about either king or, or candy crush in general in terms of statistics one of the things that surprised me is uh they've had 2.73 i think billion downloads for the three candy crush games alone do you think free to play is still here to stay or or is the table turning uh i think if anything free to play is uh expanding for better or worse you're gonna see more games uh of, of what you'd formally consider like you know triple a boxed or you know certainly full retail price purchases launch at zero cost to the player and the whole thing will be monetized through microtransactions and i suppose we've seen that in a sense this week with the the Battlefield 2 situation, which I can't really let you go without giving me a, a thought on at the end of this. Um, you know, that's a 50, 60 pound game, um, which generated huge amounts of controversy because of course, um, there are essentially pay to win elements baked into the game, which EA has now had to retract after all the the all. I mean, what do you make of all that? Was that justified is, or is that just the way things are going now? Uh, I think part of it is the way things are going. I'm not at all convinced that the way EA went about it was justified. Um, I think loot crates and uh, that kind of uh, randomized in-app purchase, it's only fair from a gameplay mechanic if it's uh, something that's effectively cosmetic that doesn't you know, impact balance or gameplay. Um, and should all and stuff that does impact balance or gameplay should always be achievable through play. Now EA say that all the stuff in Battlefront Two is achievable through play, but the time commitment. Uh, some calculations are saying it'll take you six months uh, of regular play to unlock everything in the game. That and that's just the stuff that's in the game on day one. That's not counting anything they may add to the game in future. Either way, you're going to have to put a lot more into the game beyond just the enjoyment of playing it to get what you to get the full 
package, if you will. It, it's fascinating stuff. I may have said Battlefield 2 earlier when I introduced this. I did, of course, mean Battlefront 2. Uh, if I if I said that, I can't remember. Um, but uh, either way, thanks for talking about the correct game there, Matt. Um, Matt Cannon, thanks ever so much for joining us. Um, just give people the shout where they can uh, find some more of your stuff and your uh, your views on this. Uh, so I predominantly write for Wired UK, uh, where you can find me on Twitter at Matt Cannon, and I tend to post uh, anything I ramble or blather about on there. Matt Cammon there for Wired. Uh, do check out that article. We'll have a link to it, of course, in the show notes at techpodcast.uk. Uh, well worth a read. And Ian, do you, do you play Candy Crush? Did you ever? I mean, I have played it. Do I play it now? No. God, no. Why would I? <laughs> I mean, it, I, I, suppose, I suppose it's not a, it's not a devastatingly terrible game. I've, I've, you know what? I fired up the other day. I fired up uh, whatever it's called, 2048, uh, you know, the number game. There's actually, I'd forgotten that I quite like playing it. Um, so, you know, there is a market for those sort of mindless sort of, you know, games. But it's a huge, it's a huge money thing, and I'm just that surprises me. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a big it's a big deal. I mean, it, it, you yeah. can you can tell how popular these apps are, these free to play apps. Like the business model works. If you look at any app store, the top ten grossing apps are almost all free to download. Because all the yeah, money that they make is in in-app payments. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't... Rec- I mean, let's be honest, right? So that we've just been through a week where EA has had the worst week of its life. Because of, because of uh, Star Wars Battlefront. Um, and, you know, and, and it is... There is a very clear thing when you look at these in-app purchases and, and, and stuff like that. That it is a very, very small segment of the audience that actually is even vaguely interested in paying once they've bought a game or if they've got a free game. Um, and those, and that's fine. I have no problem with people spending their money, but it is a, a those people are spending a lot of money. I remember reading one stat from um, one of the games. Someone left a games publisher and, and released some stats about what you know what they'd seen through that, and, and said something like someone had spent fifteen thousand dollars on in-app purchases or something. And, wow. and, and we've seen it with um, that that new that game, you know, the crowdfunded one. What's it called? Star Citizen. Or whatever, um, oh, right. you know, people were paying somewhere between twenty dollars for a sh- for uh, you know access to it and fifteen thousand dollars for ships and stuff like that, and it's fine, of course. If if you've got the kind of money that enables you to spend that, then absolutely, you know, I have no problem with it. You do what you want, but it just the whole thing is is is, is targeted at a very small group of people, and there is a lot of argument that um, those games are essentially gambling in their current in some of the ways they operate like loot boxes for example is is arguably gambling it's not the same in candy crush where you're buying you know th- you know unlocks to carry on playing without restriction and stuff like that I mean, it's it's very different but um do you think well i think we're probably going to end up seeing some form of regulation on uh, on this kind of stuff in the in the end i i would imagine i think cause... i think we're going to have to definitely i mean as matt said you know in the interview this this kind of thing isn't going to go away you know this is this is pretty much here to stay we're probably going to see more of it i mean i certainly see it in in a few in a few games uh i play as lots of people will know i'm i I play all the Elder Scrolls games. I, I play the Elder Scrolls Legend card game on the iPad. And if anyone else is playing that and wants to play with me, let me know, of course, because I'd love to challenge some listeners. And I play that constantly. I play it every day. I probably spent about 100 quid in that game in, in total because I absolutely adore it. And I think, you know, if I was buying, if I was 
if I was putting a price against the number of hours I've put into that game, which is probably three or four hundred hours, then a hundred quid is not a lot of money when you think about the fact that a game like Call of Duty, you might play for 20 or 30 hours and that'll cost you about 50 or 60 quid. So I don't mind paying for those games where I get tons and tons and tons of value. And then there are aspects of that game where you can buy packs of cards because it's a card-based game, mm. but you've no idea what are in the what's in those yeah, card packs. And that is gambling, basically. It's basically gambling. You can spend tens and tens of pounds, hundreds technically, on trying to get the best cards possible, but you'll never actually know what they are. They only give you a, a, a sort of a small guarantee that you at least get one card, you know, classed as rare or epic, you know, that, that basically the ones that you that you really want. But you don't know which ones those are. And then separate to that, there's a the other game, Elder Scrolls game I play a lot still is Elder Scrolls Online. They have loot boxes, exactly like EA put in yeah. with Battlefront. And that's just the same. And and a good friend of mine, Agelos, who's been on the show before, we do a Elder Scrolls podcast together, Tales of Tamriel. He and I have talked at length about loot boxes and gambling because it is gambling it's it is you know in the gaming uh, in the gaming world it's called rng you know random number generator it's basically luck uh, what sure. what you get out of these and if rng gods are on your side so the saying goes then maybe you'll get well, something great I, I out mean, of these lock boxes you, you question that because actually is it is it luck or is it just defined by uh, i mean i suppose what you're saying is that the algorithm is done based on you know a certain amount of stuff that you get in each loot box but you don't know for sure that there's not someone you know tweaking things to make it less likely you get go- although it's not really in their interest to do that is it no i mean mostly the way it works is that there's a percentage value assigned to cards and items and all this kind of stuff that you get in these games and when you open a box you know you have a a percentage chance of getting something so it might be two percent chance to get the very best thing but a 50 percent chance of you know getting one of the non-special cards so essentially you know if you were if there's a five percent chance or ten percent chance to get a, a particular item then technically in terms of the laws of averages maybe 10 boxes should guarantee you one of those items but you could easily get 10 of those items yeah but this is the this is the problem it's gambling it's luck and it's not guaranteed and it's a huge money suck and free to play games can get away with it a little more easily i think because they're not asking you for yeah. money up front but oh, battlefront was a big yeah. deal because you have to pay 50 quid for the game yeah and i mean uh destiny 2 which we've talked about you and i because you're not a big fan and you don't want to play it even though i want to play it and i do play it and it's very good fun um <laughs> bitterness but, ladies and gentlemen yeah, but, in the man's but, voice well, no and actually you uh, i've got people to play it with now thanks to uh, our friend Marta because uh, she's got a group of people that she puts together for this sort of stuff um, but yeah in that you can buy trivial things if you want but there's really no point and but it's fine if people want to do it because it gives them a better looking uh, character and all that kind of stuff and I have no problem with that um, but yeah as a rule and actually it can spoil some games for example um, I did spend some money both uh, well not I did spend a little bit of money in Pokemon Go because back at the start um, I was frustrated by the lack of uh, Pokestops around here and I've also spent some money in uh, Fallout Shelter but what I found... Ah, uh, yes. Yes, what, I spent money in Fallout Shelter yeah, too. But what I found with Fallout Shelter was that if you spend money in it, it, it kind of ruins it. it. It changes the dynamic of the game and it makes it much less of a struggle. Um, and I, I kind of think the point of gaming is to be to struggle a little bit. Like, I don't want to be... I don't want it to be impossible. Uh, but I remember those, you know, the, the games, there's a certain... 
a kind of game, isn't there? And the Simpsons game and the Family Guy game and all that kind of stuff are always and Jurassic Park are well, all Futurama. Futurama: yeah. Worlds of Tomorrow is the is the current. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I would say. The, the big the big one in uh, yeah in and i don't want to upset any devs but I, I because they do put a lot of effort into making them work for that particular you know the the, the tv show or whatever that they're going for and it is good and they use original voices and, and stuff like that so it's, it's kind of fun um but they are the same game over and over again and i i didn't i don't think i ever bought anything with those but i kind of think if you're going to play a game like that then you want to kind of achieve something yourself uh play to win basically it's just pointless it doesn't it doesn't pay pay, pay to win yeah pay, sorry pay to win exactly pay yeah, to win, pay yeah. to win. Yeah. and that's and that's and that's the thing the reason why fallout shelter and and some of those those games they don't irk me so much it's because they're single player whereas with battlefront and with the Elder Scrolls legend the card game you're you they're they're multiplayer games they're competitive games so essentially you can pay lots and lots of money to have a chance of getting things that make you stronger against another player who maybe doesn't have the financial means with which to increase their their powers or success rate so it's a real sticking point particularly i think for multiplayer games you know if, if it's just you playing fallout shelter on your own it's not a competitive thing you've got might you know brag about how nice your shelter looks on twitter or something but at the end of the day you're not you're not <laughs> changing somebody else's experience of their game by you having access to disposable income to improve your, no. your skills and, that, and that's, and that's problem. a real problem if you if you are in that position because also um before ea killed off the um the uh the purchases in uh, battlefront 2 there were it had already been live on their uh, early access thing and people will already have spent money on it um and you know and the idea being that you could buy a better you buy access to better s- skills to play the game it's just not really uh, what you want either make the game free and do that or uh don't but they're not going to win this argument no i don't think so but if you have a take on this argument let us know hello at techpodcast.uk Right, Ian, we have once again got a bulging sack of email this week, and we're going to try and get through as much of it as possible. You guys have been amazing at sending us email over the last few weeks. We've got, I mean, we get so much every week now that we have, we keep bumping some to the following week, and we, we never seem to be reading current email because we're always catching up on what we weren't able to read the previous week. Um, we had an interesting tweet, actually, from, uh, did you see this, Ian? Don't feed the bears. Yes. Uh, yes. The mug that's got a picture of a heavy metal cat. All I want to do is pet cats and listen to metal. They suggested that might be the the most appropriate mug for me, which uh, is is absolutely right. The only tweak that could have been made is all I want to do is pet cats and listen to metal and then do a podcast with Ian. <laughs> well, maybe you could get that persuade them to do a custom version or just get your biro out or you know. Mark. Yeah, or all I want to do is pet cats and listen to text message. Have yeah, you, that'd uh, be quite good. We can give some away at Christmas. Yeah, um, have you managed to find where the mug is available from? No, no idea. I just liked it and they tweeted it and said they listened to the podcast and that to me is good enough reason to uh, to say cheers uh-huh. and give us a smile. Uh, we also had an email from Stephen Huxtable, uh, one of our long-term uh, listeners and, and patrons, who uh, talked a little bit about contactless payments. He said there's one more use case for it, which is vending machines. Having to find loose change for a snack at work only to have it rejected back at me or when the change to new coins is not as seamless as it should be, um, I may or may not have been caught on CV- CCTV shaking the tempting snack prison in frustration now my 
train platform, I say mine, it's the one I use, I don't own it, at Broxbourne, where I live, uh, it has contactless payments on its vending machine now. Doesn't make the fact that I despise vending machines uh, much uh, better. but vending machines? Oh, but have you never put money in a vending machine, chosen the thing, the wheel, the little, you know, spiral things turn, and it just doesn't quite turn yeah, enough for the Everyone, snack? Everyone's had that experience. That's why you've got feet. Well, that's that's why I've got <laughs> hatred for the machines. Yeah, but you just to kick, be honest, you kick seven bells out of it, and you're entirely justified. Yeah, and then while I'm being arrested, I'll enjoy my Mars bar. But <laughs> but Stephen Huxtable does uh, does have a good point that that these machines they do make the use of any machines hell of a lot easier, particularly since I think few, fewer and fewer of us now are carrying around cash or feeling the need to carry around cash because with contactless, with Apple Pay, Android Pay, and so forth. We just we don't need it as much, and we talked about the, that last week with the the whole um, ATM machines, uh, you know, problem. But yes, good good point, Stephen. And having used a, a contactless vending machine, they are very good. I advise you get your office to get you one. Uh, Andrew Smith wrote in. I'm assuming probably not the Andrew Smith that I went to school with, but it's quite possible. Uh, this year, he says, my wife took an O2 contract for an iPhone 7. She asked me to scan through the contract that she was to sign, and I noticed that the price of the handset, as stated in the contract, was greater than the pay-as-you-go price for the handset. I thought this was strange and queried it with the sales assistant, who said it was correct and tried to pass over it quickly. I assume that this effective overpricing of handsets in long-term contracts is for tax purposes or benefits the company if the user defaults on their payments. I only mention this as you were recently calculating iPhone costs on and off contracts and you're using pay-as-you-go price for both. And as a pedant, I have to point out that you were not quite correct. I appreciate you're not a consumer affairs podcast. Um, you know what, though? I don't know if we were using pay-as-you-go prices for those comparisons. I think we were using contracts. Well, I... Um, I, I believe. Yeah, I was certainly good... looking at contract prices. Well, yeah, I think when I, I do it, I just do it as SIM only, which isn't a pay-as-you-go price, is it? Mm, I'm not. I'm not sure. But it's interesting that, uh, that, that 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 price was was more on a contract than it was on on pay-as-you-go. I've I've not seen that, but maybe there are more examples around that. I mean, Andrew says he's from the Ian Morris school of thought, whereby I tend to buy handsets outright and get a contract separately. And uh, I I agree. That's... There are dozens of us. Yes, there are many. Um, let's see. Stephen Bowman, he wrote in. Do you want to read this one out? Yeah, Ian? sure. Uh, I got my iPhone X 64 gig. Right, I'm uh, furious now because <laughs> I don't have one, obviously. Uh, uh, white, and I've been loving it. I've found that Face ID is pretty good. Only two drawbacks. Uh, one, only one face can be registered. In the far in the past, I've added friends and families uh, with to Touch ID so they can easily use my phone. This will no longer be possible as I use my phone to check my work emails and I need to keep changing my passcode. Uh, I find it doesn't, number two, I find it doesn't like unlocking when I'm laying in bed and looking up. Uh, and to be fair to the phone, looking at a photo of my face, it does change shape when laying flat. Look, <laughs> I mean, mate, you can't overcome gravity. It's just one of those things. Uh, the, the, the other advantages of lying down, you know, means that the, the man belly goes away a little bit. So I, let's not cause a ruckus over this. Um, he says, overall, I'm finding getting to use of the new gestures and no home button. Um, it, sorry. Overall, I'm finding I'm getting used to uh, using the gestures and no home buttons. Uh, the slightly smaller size but bigger screen is feeling great. The new portrait lighting effects are good at producing effects most of the time. Hopefully, this will improve when it moves out of beta. Uh, love a show. Keep up the great work. And yeah, I agree. Um, the, the, uh, the portrait stuff does need some work on the iPhone 8 Plus from the back camera. Uh, but I'm really... 
I like really excited about the idea of doing it on the front camera because, you know, it'd be nice to have some good selfies for a change. Yeah, definitely. And it does it does work very, very well because I've been using the iPhone X and the review is coming midweek this coming week. So look out to that. We're going to put that out as a, as a standalone episode. We've also got some input uh, from one of our regular patrons in, in that review, which is very exciting. You know who you are out there. Um, Stephen also sent in a photo of what looks like a Gruffalo that he took in, in portrait yeah, mode. Fox, which uh, it's the fox from the Gruffalo, yeah. Very, very, very sweet. Um, but good, glad, glad you're enjoying it. I certainly agree with the uh, with the Face ID thing. It, it's working incredibly well. It almost never, ever fails for me. Um, but I also have the problem in bed where if I'm laying down, part of my face is obscured by a pillow, it doesn't like identifying me. I have to put in my passcode, which is a little frustrating at, at night if I'm trying to do it covertly without waking my wife up but there we go uh ken long one of our newest patrons has mentioned at the top of the show sent us an email i'm going to read the whole thing because i think this is brilliant this is such a brilliant story about rural fiber broadband it's it's great this is what ken says hi long time listener second time emailer i was spurred to write after hearing your discussion about vodafone's cable broadband plans my wife and I live out in the sticks and thought you may or may not be interested in how we have got fibre to the premises broadband. Yes, Ken, we are indeed very interested. We moved to the edge of the Cotswolds nearly six years ago. At the time, BT and OpenReach were promising an upgrade to our exchange within 18 months. Meanwhile, we enjoyed 1.5 megabits per second downloads and 0.2 megabit per second up. After 18 months, I checked the progress of our exchange upgrade and was interested to see that it would occur in the next 18 months. And repeat and repeat so imagine my eyes pricking up when i receive can eyes prick up i don't believe so but let's gloss over it okay when i received a letter from a company called gigaclear asking us to register our interest in the fiber broadband network that they were looking to roll out in our area they required a certain percentage of households to express an interest and once that threshold was reached uh required it you know once they got a certain number of signups they must have I've sort of butchered Ken's email here, but basically they needed to get a a number of signups in order to roll out the the stuff. Over the next few months, local lanes were closed as the big fibre pipes were installed and then gradually local properties were connected to the network. We live at the end of a long private drive and unless we want to pay a fortune to have the cable laid by professional installers, we, my neighbour and I, would have to do it ourselves. Uh So we duly ordered 150 metres of fibre optic cable each. Then when we arrived, we laid the whole lot over a long weekend. GigaClear provided clear instructions on how to connect our cables to theirs and how to run in a trench and how to install the router and modem unit in the house. That's powered... brilliant. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I love this so much. <laughs> when I powered everything up, I was delighted to see necessary lights illuminate on the modem, see the speed test showed 50 meg down and up. What a joy. We've had no issues with the service and any outages have been notified well in advance and have taken place overnight. Now, there's an even better bit to this service that I I don't think anyone else offers, and if they do, let me know. He says they, they paid about 200 quid for the cable and about 100 quid for the installation kit, but he thinks it's well spent. However, they pay about 42 quid a month for the connection, but you can pay a fiver to upgrade to one gigabit per second for 48 hours. Oh, Very nice. useful when it comes to backing up my photo library, Ken yes. says. Now, can you imagine that? Because I tell you something, I'd pay a fiver to upgrade. I mean, I have 400 meg at home on my fiver, but a gigabit is more than double that. And I would definitely, if needed, to I would pay a fiver. 
Yeah, I mean, to upgrade so that for, for the thing a few is, hours. Uh, my, my only my only sort of uh, feeling reading this is uh, it's a little bit overpriced, I think. Um, but because if it's like fifty megabits per second for forty two quid, that's quite a lot of money. But I lo- I love the idea of installing it yourself. Um, and actually, I I I want Ken to write back in actually because. Um, I don't, I'd love to know what's involved in laying your own fibre because, as I understand it, fibre installations are relatively tricky to do. Um, you know, you have to to get the thing to connect. You know, to you know, cut fibre cables and stuff. It's not exactly an easy process. Um, so, Ken, uh, please explain how what's involved in that. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll, we can come to that next week. And if you've got any photos oh, of the yes. process, we would we would love to we'd love to see those. I'm sure listeners would love to see them as well. Um, we've got more email, but to be honest, we, we've we're running out of time here, so we're going to push those into next week. But do keep the emails coming. It's great having so much to talk about from you every week. <laughs> um, but we're going to check in now with Tom Merritt, Daily Tech News Show. Check what's been going on in the wider world of tech this week, Tom. Thanks, guys. This week on Daily Tech News Show, we talk about just how much you should rely on Apple's Face ID, and over the course of the week, compare it to Android and Windows. We dug into the whole EA Battlefront 2 fracas, got the scoop from Patrick Norton on which 4K TVs to buy, kicked around the trust indicator label idea for news stories, and talked about why weakening encryption is not the answer to law enforcement's needs, but the answer sadly involves money. All that and so much more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Back to you. Thanks, Tom. And yes, highly recommended listening to the 4K TV episode in particular, I think, because they, they go into good detail about HDR and what's worth investing in at this point in time. Um, so do check that out if you're in the market for a new telly. Andy just got the new LG 65-inch uh, HDR 4K thing. It looks rather delightful, I have to say. Rather envious. Mine's 4K, but mine's not HDR. There we go. I don't have anything to say because I've still got a 1080p TV and no HDR either. Are you still using a Kuro, Pioneer? yeah. yeah. It's still great, mate. It's still great. I mean, it's not a perfect TV by any stretch of the imagination, but the fact that it holds up now um, in a 4K era, it still looks amazing. It's sharp as anything. I love it. I know you've been a fan of that TV for many years. I got it in 2000 and I want to say 2008 or something like that. So it's nearly 10 years old. Because I think they stopped making the Kuros in 09. Yeah. Um, it, mate, it's it's still a great TV. It just... it. It's too much power and it gets very hot. But it, for me, it still ha- hits that right sort of the what I need in a TV is something that looks represents the picture that was put onto the disc as neatly as possible. And I do genuinely believe that it does that even to this day. Yeah. Well, if you consume too much power and or are very hot, uh, let us know. Hello at techpodcast.uk. We would love to hear as much as possible. And thank you to our patrons supporting us at patreon.com slash UK tech for as little as $1 a week. You can join them. And we're going to have some news on the Patreon coming up soon. So very exciting news. Uh-huh. Let's just say more value and more features. Like, uh, you know how the YouTube... No, no, I'm not giving anything away. I'm just going to say okay. that it's the YouTubers always have an announcement. I've got an announcement coming up. Stay, ch- stay tuned for an announcement. We've become that. Yeah, we have, except we're not doing, you know, jump cuts every four and a half seconds and talking about makeup. And we really do have an announcement. Oh, we do, yeah. And, and it is one you're going you're, you're going to like, um, I think. It's, uh, it's going to take the show to, a, to another level, I think. But we'll probably announce that next week. In the meantime, keep your thoughts, feedback, opinions, ideas, criticisms, photos, free stuff, whatever, coming at hello at techpodcast.uk. And Ian and I will see you in 
one week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.